Hi guys, Editing Fina here. I just wanted to hop on really quick before this episode started and give a quick trigger warning. Um, this entire episode is about anxiety, but specifically we talk a lot about death in general, death anxiety, death of pets, pet OCD, cancer, and social anxiety. Um, as always, if this is not something you feel like you can listen to, no worries. But other than that, it's a great episode. We talk about two subsets of anxiety that aren't really talked about enough, despite the fact that a lot of people deal with them. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Hi, all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, today, we have Bailey of Anxiety.Positive on to talk about death anxiety and social anxiety. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad we finally have you on. We have been we've been fighting for this recording. Yes. We keep having random things come up, and we're like, we finally were able to find a day that worked, and like everything nothing's gone wrong technologically we're solid so like woohoo we've yeah. been working for this for a while um but thank you so much for coming on um i followed your page for a little while now i think um i you have some not only some really good content but it's also in really digestible formats and it's mm-hmm. it's aesthetically pleasing it's pretty it's like my like OCD loves the organization and like all like, you know, it's, it's, it's little bits of information that are either encouraging or educational and it's not too much. And sometimes going on Instagram and I follow a lot of mental health accounts and having it be like instant, really, really, really heavy information can be really difficult. Um, and so I've always really appreciated your like, obviously it, it can get heavy when you're talking about mental health, but your how digestible it is and how, um, I guess, accessible it is as well. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of a space as well to just uh, give some context on why you started your page, um, where you got the inspiration for it, and even when it started and kind of some context on how, how, it, how it got to be what it is now. Yeah, definitely. So um, I started off um, getting into psychology in college. So in my undergrad, um, I studied psychology, um, and it's always been something I realized I wanted to do just because I am that friend that everyone kind of comes to when they need advice or everyone thinks I just have good things to say, I guess. So it's kind of come naturally to me. Um, and then after I studied psychology in my undergrad, um, I'm now doing my master's to in social work so I can get licensed and um, be a clinician or a therapist or um, whatever comes next for me after that. But I actually didn't get into anxiety specifically until around 2019 when I had my first panic attack. Um, and I think that's when <laughs> everything, like the doors kind of opened for me um, because I went through it and I experienced it. and. Um, that's what I decided to do is kind of focus on it. And I used social media as my platform because it's so, like you said, kind of accessible for every, like everybody's on social media. So I thought it would be a good platform to get that message out, but in a way where I could also be creative about it. Um, And that's kind of how that came to be. Yeah. Speaking of the, the creativity aspect, um, that was one of the things I was going to ask. Do you, do you illustrate all of the things on your page? 
Yeah, I do. So I do everything. I actually have it in front of me. I do everything on my iPad by myself. Um, I actually originally started using my phone and like my finger because I didn't have the tools or like the money for the tools. Um, so I was doing that until for Christmas, my fiance got me um, my iPad. And I realized that I, not like that I could draw, but that I could have um, like a ta- like a talent for it and I could learn. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I mean, like it's it's genuinely it's genuinely really pretty. Um, but yeah, so we 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 kind of were trying to figure out a topic for this and we settled on um social anxiety and death anxiety, which I think are kind of two forms of anxiety that don't especially death anxiety that like doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah. Um oh. and you've posted a little bit about both of those on your page and we talked about just kind of feeling like that would be a good, a good subset of anxiety to kind of bring awareness to and talk about, because I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people suffer from it, but specifically, I think it's really, um, I guess it's very timely in terms of COVID and dealing with, you know, two years of, of a pandemic. Um, I think a lot of people have, either develop social anxiety or um, their social anxiety has been like seriously aggravated. And I know that people's death anxiety, like me included, um, has gotten a lot worse because there's just been something, you know, when there's something so major and so global that's threatening death in such a major, major, major way, um, that's bound to cause anxiety in pretty much the whole population, but specifically for people who suffer from death anxiety, I think it, it hits a lot harder. Um, so with that being said, do you want to chat a little bit about what death anxiety is to start for those who maybe don't know what we're talking about? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, death anxiety to me is just kind of, I wouldn't say obsessing, but it's kind of hyper-focusing on death and all things related. Um, so for example, I always use like my mother got breast cancer um, when I was a little younger. And then f- for years after that, I would obsess over cancer. Like I would, any symptom I had, I was like, do I have cancer? Like, am I going to develop breast cancer because my mom had breast cancer? Like, or looking at other people and saying, are they going to get breast cancer? Like, or are they going to get cancer? Just, um, it just finds this invasive way into your life of this nonstop thought process. Um, and that's, kind of anxiety in general is, um, has to do with your thoughts and nonstop thinking or ruminating on certain things. Um, so for death anxiety, it's just kind of this horrible, horrible fear around your own mortality, um, your death, what that's going to look like, when it's going to happen, how uncontrollable it is. Um, just all of those aspects, um, can be a part of death anxiety. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's also important to point out that a lot of these a lot of the kind of subsets of anxiety have a lot of crossover in terms of like different um i guess disorders like death anxiety shows up a lot in OCD um and uh there's a lot of crossover and they're very intertwined i think um additionally uh basically there's also a death anxiety specifically, as far as I know, this this might not be accurate. Um, as far as I know, death anxiety is not listed 
in the DSM as like an actual disorder. Um, but this is a hot take. The DSM doesn't list a lot of things that are like very valid disorders. Um, no. Another hot take too that I won't go into, but uh, the DSM is highly involved and tied to insurance. So that's all I'm going to say about that. So I wouldn't really take the DSM as Bible. <laughs> oh no, I, I would I would back that up a hundred percent. The big pharma crossover with the DSM is pretty mm-hmm. intense. Um, and with that being said, I think that when you're looking at anxiety and you're looking at mental disorders in general, there is a spectrum. Um, and that is an idea that has only become mainstream in the past maybe five years. It's been talked about in psychological articles and journals for a while, but it's become more mainstream. I think specifically, um, from my personal opinion, I think that the um, the autism community actually really, really, really brought the idea of a spectrum like to the mainstream lens, where when you hear people talk about spectrums, they're most likely talking about autism. And um, the autistic community deserves some serious credit for for normalizing, talking about things being on a spectrum. Um, I think that that also then got brought into, and obviously like there are there are communities that have been talking about this for a long time, but in terms of bringing it to the mainstream, um, it got talked, it also was brought into, um, or rather got talked about a lot once people started to kind of understand the idea of, of a spectrum when it comes to emotional needs and, um, disorders and things, it got brought into anxiety. It got brought into OCD. It got brought into mood disorders, like all these different things. Um, people started, I thinking of them in terms of spectrums. And like I said, there have been psychologists that have been doing this for a long time. Um, and there has been research dating back for a long time of this actually being a thing. But, um, I only say that because I know that, um, and I only bring up the DSM because I know that sometimes people, um, that, that is the, the greatest tool at our disposal, I guess, when it comes to diagnosing. And so it might be difficult to be diagnosed with death anxiety, it might be something that you just kind of learn about yourself. Um, I think there's a thin line and it's a, it's also a very hot topic conversation when it comes to like self-diagnosing. Um, and I won't get into that too much, but I will say, I think that you are the person who knows your body the best. And so if, if you relate to a lot of what we're talking about, there are lots of resources that talk about death anxiety online. Um, and just because it isn't in the DSM does not mean that it is not real and it does not impact you. The DSM, like you said, is not the Bible. Um, and I would agree with that. Um, in, in con in contrast, uh, social anxiety is in the DSM. So, um, when we get to that, uh, I will, I'll read the, the definition of social anxiety from the DSM, but just for, for context, uh, death anxiety is not. Um, but I also wanted to to talk a little bit about kind of the forms that it takes um, in terms of death anxiety about yourself, death anxiety about family, pets, partners, um, and kind of how that might manifest in your life. Like maybe some examples of it of it showing up. Yeah. So I mean, that goes back to kind of my mom's cancer diagnosis, and then another. I think. I think uh, when I experienced it the most was actually when my cat passed (laughs) last um, November. And I was really open about that on my page 
when that happened because it was a super traumatic passing and it was unexpected. So it, it felt super out of my control. Um, and then a few things that started to happen after that, I noticed was that any slight cough or movement or breathing or anything of my other two cats, I like lost my mind. Um, I was extremely worried about them and their health after this happened because it kind of brought me to like, just to go off to like, I think anxious people are some of the most logical people. And that's why, um, I think anxiety can be so scary is because it's not very logical at all. Um, so one plus one is not equaling two. And so that kind of creates that spiraling, but basically, um, I saw what could happen to my cat that passed. And then I said, well, why isn't, why wouldn't this happen to my other two cats? You know, like anything is possible at this point. So my mind just started to go crazy. (laughs) And another thing with people with anxiety is they're the most creative people. So they can come up with all kinds of horrible things, (laughs) um, which is, you know, the worst. So I would start to have dreams about the horrible things that could happen to my cats. Um, I became hyper fixated, like I said, on, on what they were doing, what they were eating, just any way that I could prevent them from dying because I was almost convinced that that is what's going to happen next because one cat died. It's like the next two are just kind of done for. And so I realized that I was experiencing severe death anxiety, um, to a point where I just wasn't enjoying having pets. I was just trying to prevent them from dying. Um, so I think it can come up in all different places. You know, for me, it's come up in my mom and and my pets and, um, I'm sure people can relate to this in one way or another, because I think when I posted about it, I've never had so many comments of people saying, I didn't know this was a thing. And I've been through this and, um, thank you for talking about it because no one does. And I've never even seen this anywhere type of thing. Um, so I think it's something that definitely should be discussed more because it's so interesting how we all are going to die, but nobody talks about it and nobody, um, helps you process it in a way where it's healthy. Um, and I also feel like the way the United States in general processes death is super different than a lot of other cultures. That's kind of this thing where it's scary. Um, and you don't want to look at it. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to talk about it. You want to avoid it, um, and move on. And instead of kind of maybe celebrating life or focusing on the fact that we do all die and how can we enjoy right now and looking at your death as something that is inevitable and that's okay. And you don't have to have control of it over it. Um, instead of being so afraid of it, I think that adds to why there's so many people with death anxiety. It's like part of the culture, I guess. Yeah, I do think it's a very like westernized thing. Um, We talked on the podcast quite a bit about (laughs) my extreme like pet OCD and pet uh, anxiety. That death anxiety 100% creeps into that. Um, And I relate so much to you saying that you weren't really even focusing on having pets. You were just focusing on protecting them from dying. Because there have been times where I'm like, I could have just taken my dog on a walk and instead I'm sitting here like checking her body because I saw that there was like a little lesion and I want to make sure that she's fine and I'm like absolutely panicking. Um, I think, yeah, and I think that that 
like like we've mentioned already, definitely comes from, I think, uh, a partial just lack of being able to control things. It's very scary when there are things out of your control. And I think that with pets specifically or with partners or with people that access your um, kind of the your top level of love. In my brain, I separate my levels of love, uh, not even intentionally, but um, I had a trauma as a child that kind of, uh, I guess, capped my love capacity, and I wasn't able to access that very top level. And it was kind of like hidden away forever in like a dissociative state. Um, and then I got my dog and she, within the first like two weeks, like, and I've always been a very like common crisis. Like I am good to go if there's a crisis, like someone can like have a horrific injury happen in front of me. And I'm like, I will deal with my emotions later. Like I am in the moment. I got this. And I've, oh, I've been like that um, first. Yeah. Are you the the same? Yeah. So (laughs) I, and I've always, I've like been that way for a very long time, including like as a child. And, um, I, I didn't realize that that top part of my love capacity had been capped off until my dog, when she was about, uh, 10 weeks old, I got her when she was eight weeks. Uh, she stepped on a bee and, um, she started screaming, like not even barking. She was screaming and she's like writhing around in pain on the ground, like freaking out. And she's tiny. And I ran out there and I lost my shit. I was just like screaming. And I was like, mom, do something. Like my mom's right there. Just like, Jesus, like get it together. And I'm just losing it. And it took some time after and there, cause I was like, I was like scream sobbing. Like I turned into a four-year-old and after some time and just reflection, I'm a very, I've always not always last six years, I've been a very self-reflective person of trying to just like, okay, why did I feel that way? Like, why did my emotions come out that way? And I was thinking about it and I was like, oh shit. Like she accessed a portion of my love that I don't think I realized I didn't have access to. And then I started dating my partner and I was like, oh fuck, he accessed it too. And so now I'm like, now I have this like increased level of anxiety where I have more anxiety about things happening to them than really anyone else in my life, including myself. Like I have way more anxiety about them. Um, and like we said, or like I said, there's a crossover. And so like a lot for me, my death anxiety is definitely a limb or like a sister off of my OCD. That's kind of my primary issue. Um, and the death anxiety kind of comes off of that for the social anxiety. I'm pretty sure I'm I have autism and I think I'm undiagnosed, um, as does everyone in my life. And so the social anxiety, I think comes off of that, uh, that limb. Mm-hmm. But, um, if you are wanting to learn, see it. Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm so sorry. I was no, going to no, no, say, no, I kind of, I kind of see it as this umbrella, like at the top is just like generalized anxiety. And then there's like different forms of that, that other things can fall under. So I completely yeah. agree with the way you explain it. Yeah. And the, in the awareness, like you said, of like talking about those subsets and talking about those different types of, um, anxiety that kind of like stem off of the, the main, uh, like the main umbrella of generalized anxiety. That's so important because sometimes you don't even realize it's anxiety. You just think that you're crazy or you're overthinking or whatever. And you haven't even had the awareness that it is stemming from something. 
And so I've posted so many times, um, like posts that will be like things you didn't know were anxiety. And I can't tell you how many people are like, holy fuck, I do that. Or like, oh shit. Mm -hmm. Like, so this is anxiety and no one's been listening to me. Um, so that's a huge thing too, is it just shows right away that we're not talking enough about it to the fact where people fully have severe anxiety and are either in denial about it or just are simply uneducated that the fact that that's happening to them. Yeah. And the, and the community aspect of not feeling like you're isolated is so important too. And in reference to what you said earlier about, about grief and and death and not really being able to, that, that it's not normalized. Um, just as a, uh, a quick plug for an episode, but more of a plug for the, the guests that I had on for these episodes. Um, I just did an episode with my big sister, um, episode 49. And we talked about deconstruction because someone was talking about, um, leaving Christianity and the fact that they started having a lot of anxiety about dying, which is so valid. If you've, if you've been taught your whole life that you're going to a certain place and now you don't know where you're going when you die, that's, that's horrifying. That can be really frightening. And my sister brought up an amazing point of the fact that specifically in religious environments, you essentially just don't get taught about grief because everything is okay. And you don't need to grieve because you're going to see them again. And so I think that death is so scary. And I think that when we're talking about death anxiety about other beings like our pets or our partners, I think there's a really significant grief anxiety where you're terrified about grieving because you don't know how to grieve. And so you don't know how to grieve. So it's like, if I lose this person, what's going to happen? And so we talked about that in episode 49. Um, but then even further than that, um, I did an episode uh, on grief, episode 40 with Lou of the Grief Project, who is just the kindest person in the whole world. And if you're looking for like further grief education and honestly, just like familiar, familiarizing yourself with grief and with death and talking about it and talking about the anxiety that might surround that, um, Lou does that in a really gentle way. Um, that in my opinion makes it feel really safe and feel like a really safe space to express those anxieties. Um, and then I'm going to plug one more guest. Uh, uh, episode 44, I had Dr. Amy of OCD Nashville on, who once again is one of those people. There are a few episodes that I've done where I just was like crying through them because I'm like having a therapy session with my guest. Um, and Dr. Amy was one of those. And we talked about pet OCD. Um, and like you said, people with anxiety, and I think OCD kind of gets lumped into that as well, are incredibly creative people. And um, Dr. Amy brought up the point that completely reframed my thought process around my OCD, where she was like, people with OCD are some of the most creative and empathetic people. They care so much about what happens to other people. And they have these amazing, creative, big brains that create these really big situations and they can be used for good and they can be used for bad. And sometimes it can create these situations that are so elaborate and detailed and creative and they might not necessarily like be accurate but they're so creative and it completely reframed the way that I viewed my OCD because I think it's so easy um when you're struggling with anxiety or OCD to beat yourself up for it and to feel kind of stupid and feel kind of crazy and feel really frustrated at your brain for giving you these thoughts and and making you panic and making you feel really scared and it was a really interesting perspective to look at it as like, well, no, 
I just have a really creative brain and like exactly. I just need to help it learn how to be a little bit uh, creative in different ways and perhaps not right. in destructive ways. <laughs> right. Absolutely. That's so interesting. Ah. I think that's super important to reframe it as well because it's so easy, especially like you said, with people with anxiety and just mental illness in general to absolutely hate yourself. And I think yeah. that with your diagnoses, like that just adds to how easy it is. Um, So that's really important um, that you bring that up. Yeah. Self-hatred is a big one. And I actually don't think that gets talked about very often either. How often Mm -hmm. you can be at odds with your own mind and also how like out of body that is to have like something that is a part of you and be like, yeah, I fucking hate this and I hate my brain and I want it to stop. And I feel like it's betraying me. And it's a very like complicated, like, it is nuanced kind of icky relationship sometimes it reminds me I mean that kind of just goes back to anxiety in general I feel like I've described anxiety sometimes as like this parasite like that is just Mm -hmm. there and you can't do anything about it and it's controlling every part of you but there's still that other side of you begging for control and trying to turn the wheel and get your body and mind back like I just feel like when I would have those panic attacks or just anxiety in general, it, it felt like there was a part of me that I didn't know and I didn't recognize and it was, it was fighting me. Yeah. Um, which is a really confusing and scary feeling. Yeah, for sure. And with that being said, what are some tools that you think are helpful when you're trying to cope with death anxiety, when you're having those like very overwhelming kind of almost betraying thoughts of, of trying to how do you try to get out of that headspace? Yeah. So this is something I get asked all the time, all day by everybody. Um, and I, the first thing I want to say is what may work for you might not work for the next person. Everybody is so wildly different that there is no one answer because if there was, everyone would just be doing it and no one would have anxiety and it would be really fun and fresh. Um, but unfortunately that's not the case. So a few things that I can speak of that personally help me and may help someone else um, are first of all, finding ways to gain that control back. Because like we said, I think death has a lot to do with um, not having a grasp or control on that situation or on the idea at all. Um, So something actually that I suggested that was kind of controversial, (laughs) I, I don't understand it, but something I suggested was to create a vision of your perfect death. So if I was going to say, if you had to die, which we all do, um, what would the best case scenario look like for you? Um, and just to kind of sit with that, you know, cause for me, that would be kind of cliche where I'm surrounded by the people I love and care about and I'm dying of old age and not something, you know, terrible. And it's a very peaceful, beautiful transition and kind of sitting with that and saying, that's not out of the question that could happen to me. You know, that's not some dream that's, that happens to people. Um, I think that kind of helps me reframe the idea of what that might look like and gives me some control back and saying, you know, this would be great. Um, and then also another thing that helps is just validating those fears and saying like, being scared of dying is normal and, you know, as close to whatever normal means, but I'm, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to have this anxiety and fear because we have no fucking idea what's going to happen. Like it's a super out of control like thing. So 
it's totally fine to feel that way. Um, it doesn't mean you're weird. It doesn't mean something's wrong with you. Um, it's completely normal. I want to put that out there too. Um, and another thing I would suggest is just to, uh, super cliche, but just to focus on the life you have in front of you. Um, that is something that I think is so dumb to say sometimes, but when you really apply it, it helps. Like just to say, I am not dead right now. I am not dead right in this minute. So I'm going to enjoy this minute that I have, you know, and apply that to the next five minutes or the next, you know, hour, whatever you can. Um, Cause sometimes it can be a lot to process and just focusing on right now and the life that you have and are living is something that has helped me. Yeah. I think being in the present in general can be and it's so easy to say and be like, be in the present, to be mindful. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how mindful minds, that's kind of the whole fucking idea here. <laughs> but um, it's it's like really easy to say and it's really hard to do. Um, but I, I do, I really like, and I understand how that could be controversial, but I actually really do like the ideal death thing because if you're imagining some really terrible, awful, uh, like drawn up way that you've like imagined that you could maybe die – um, I, I will get intrusive, um, thoughts, but intrusive like visions a lot, um, where I envision myself like something happening specifically the one that's like the most clear is there's a step in my parents' house. And every time I step over that step, I envision myself slipping and hitting my chin. And I've been envisioning that since I was like four, like literally had just every time I step over that step. And I don't think I've ever fallen, but every time I step over it, I like see it in my head. And I have gotten to places where, and even, even envisioning like ideal deaths for other people. I know that sounds even weirder, but like, Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. I do that yeah. all the time with my cat because like I said, yes, the way yes. he died was super traumatic. So I just think back in my head, like I, even though it didn't happen, I will just think of him peacefully passing. And it truly just helps kind of rewire those connections that your brain have, has made that are so negative. It's, it's saying, I want to dig another pathway that looks better for me. And that is healthier for me. Yeah. Well, and that's quite literally like if I would, if you haven't done this, I would highly suggest EMDR for mm-hmm. that. That's like, that was one of the things I learned in EMDR was I went back to like a horribly traumatic situation and I just rewrote it <laughs> and I exactly. got to bring in my safe person and my safe person exactly. stopped the bad person from hurting me. And I got to walk away from it and be like, cool. Like, I won. This is great. We're like, not traumatized. Right. <laughs> yeah. And like it was the craziest thing, I didn't think it worked, to be honest, because I still could remember. Because it sounds so ridiculous, right? Yeah. Well, and when I did it, I could still remember the trauma. And mm-hmm. so in my mind, I was like, well, didn't brainwash me, so it didn't work. And right. then I went I, I went back to the the site of the trauma, like the place where it happened. And I didn't even realize I was going back. I had forgotten that it was the place that it happened. And I showed up and I was like, oh shit, like this is where that traumatic experience happened. And then I was like, okay. And then went on with my life. And I called my therapist and I was like, dude, like that might've worked. <laughs> like, I think mm-hmm. I think the EMDR worked. <laughs> I think you're doing your job. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the idea of like imagining, I do that with my dog sometimes. Like I've been very open and upfront on this podcast about the fact that Stevie Ray, my dog is my absolute lifeline. And like, 
the idea of her dying is horrific to me. I it is very rare that I get through talking about it without crying. I almost I think like what like probably like the six out of seven times I've cried on the podcast it has been because of me talking about my dog. Um, and she's alive. She's two. She's literally right there. She's fine. And um, I will get really worked up in my head where I'll be leaving my house. And I we talked about this in the episode about OCD, but like I'll be leaving my house and thinking about oh my god the house is going to catch on fire. Like it's going to, it's going to. And I just get it so in my head and something that can kind of help me reframe a little bit is the idea that like she, she could, she could still just die as a peaceful old doggy. And I think completely separating the idea that she's going to die at all because I did that at the beginning. I would say yeah. if she dies and not like when, like like right. there's a chance that just maybe she'll live forever. Um, Which is so that I want to acknowledge that just just acknowledging death is huge and so yeah. difficult. It sounds ridiculous because we, we're all, every single thing is going to die, but just talking about it and, and accepting that is, is a it's huge hard. thing. Yeah, it's hard. And so the first time that I like kind of just like was like, well, like when when she she dies. And I think I was right. talking to my my boyfriend, he was like, "Good job." <laughs> I was like, Thanks. "Right." Like, ah. That's and the first thing that happened to me is after my cat died, I looked at my other two and I said, "Oh, that's going to happen to you both. That is going to happen to you both and there's no mm-hmm. stopping that." Okay. It's it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I have definitely, when I started, because I, I I will say I don't think that ignoring that death, I don't think ignoring death is the answer because I've done that. And I think if anything, that that brings us back to the fact that we don't know how to grieve and we're so terrified of it, grief. I think that's what we're doing right now, just as a collective, is like death is so ignored. Mm-hmm. It just is this big mysterious thing and that is super scary, but no one wants to talk about it, whatever. It's super pushed away. And I think that's a huge part of where that anxiety comes from because yeah. one thing that helps people with anxiety is just having more information on things. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the more you know, the less scary things become. So I think yep. talking about death is the one thing that is really going to help with that, even though it's the hardest. Yeah. And talking about grief as well and what the after process is like, because that was huge for me, like talking to Lou of the grief project and having a conversation about like, as her, she is someone who has experienced death of people close to her. I have not. And so the unknown is a, it was a huge one for me of like the anxiety of not knowing what it's going to look like. And that all of that really got in my head. And now let's take a moment to chat about our wonderful sponsors for this week's episode. So finding the perfect gift for someone can be really tricky, especially as an adult. I've noticed that as I've grown up, I have a harder and harder time figuring out what to get people for birthdays and Christmases, et cetera, et cetera. Mainly because what do you get someone who has everything? My hand-drawn pictures don't really cut it anymore. Well, that's where Intention Wave comes in. Intention Wave is a company that allows you to transform the sound of your voice into a meaningful jewelry piece. When you visit their online store, you can record a voice message directly on their website, and they transform it into a unique sound wave frequency pattern and engrave it on the jewelry piece of your choice. This allows you to wear a meaningful sound on you or share it with a loved one so they can wear it on them. With your jewelry box, you will receive a unique QR code card that you scan whenever you want to listen to your recorded sound message. One of the things I love so much about these pieces is they are so incredibly thoughtful and intentional. We chat a lot about intentionality on Mindful Minds, and I can't think of anything more intentional than your loving words spoken into art. 
Intention Waves has a lot of products to choose from, including necklaces, keychains, rings, and more. It's also super easy to record your message and upload it to their website. From start to finish, recording my message and the checkout process included, it only took me about three minutes to have my order completed. So if you're looking for a thoughtful gift to give your partner, parent, friend, or loved one, especially with the holiday season rapidly approaching, Intention Wave is the gift for you. Check out their website at intentionwave.com to place your order today. And then I also, I want us to make sure, sh- I want to make sure that we have time to talk about social anxiety as well. Yeah. And so um, I want to read the DSM uh, definition of it really quick. Um, and so the current DSM definition describes it as a persistent fear of one or more social performance situations in which the person is exposed to unfamiliar people or to possible scrutiny by others. The individual fears that he or she will act or show anxiety symptoms will be embarrassing and humiliating. Um, it can also be the exposure to feared situation uh, exposure to the feared situation almost invariably provokes anxiety, which may take the form of a situationally bound or situationally predisposed panic attack. The person recognizes that this fear is unreasonable or excessive. The feared situations are avoided or else are endured with intense anxiety and distress. Uh, the avoidance, anxious, an- anxious anticipation or distress in the feared social or performance situations interfere significantly with the person's normal routine. Uh, the fear, anxiety, or avoidance is persistent, typically lasting six or more months, and the avoidance or fear is not due directly to a physio- physiological effect of a substance, aka like drugs or medications, or a general medical condition not better accounted for by another mental disorder. And with all that being said, there is a website called socialanxietyinstitute.org that then goes into essentially some of the ways that that definition is problematic um which it it basically just talks about the fact that um like just using a panic attack as the description might not be super inclusive of other uh, symptoms of social anxiety like you might not have a panic attack every time you exhibit social anxiety um and then you also may exhibit an anxiety attack which is not uh the same as a panic attack. And so by including panic attack in the definition, it can kind of exclude people who um, might actually have social anxiety, but might not be able to be diagnosed. Um, And there are some other resources on the socialanxietyinstitute.org that explain some more, but that's kind of the general gist of what it is. Um, And so with all that being said, um, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about the actual tangible ways that social anxiety might manifest? Yes. Um, This (laughs) list is like exhaustive because it goes back to every person being different. Social anxiety for someone can look like not wanting to pick up the phone all the way to not wanting to spend time with people that you love and are comfortable with. Um, It can take so many forms. And personally, I don't suffer with a lot of social anxiety, but my fiance does. It's literally crippling to her. So I see it on a daily basis. Um, And I can totally understand how from an outside perspective, it can make no sense um, in the ways that it shows up. So um, it can be so minuscule in things like, for example, my fiance, um, people that we know and love, like her own friends um, and my own friends, she will be super anxious to spend time around sometimes. Like that's just how it comes up. Even though we've known these people for years, she loves spending time with them. Um, It's just kind of uncontrollable. Um, 
And that's something that took me a while to understand too. Like I kept finding myself being like, okay, but we know these people and they know you and they know that you have anxiety and they understand and, you know, but it doesn't matter um, at all. So um, it's, I think the only definition part of it that I agreed with was the fact that it says it has to do with um, kind of performance or judgment from others. Um, those are two big things that I think tie into social anxiety that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, I I did yoga in the park yesterday morning mm-hmm. and very I planned out. Sorry. I said very brave of you. <laughs> no, literally it didn't. So for for a few things, didn't cross my mind that people would be at the park. Mm. Don't know why. In my mind, I was like, no, it's just going to be us at the park, like me and me the, and the grass. <laughs> yeah, like it's, there's no one else that's going to be there. I did not anticipate the fact that this park would be fucking packed and there would be people taking photos of us doing yoga, like random that's strangers. And so thank God it was yoga and wasn't like a p90x class because at least yoga is like very much so the like it's helping you feel grounded it's helping you Mm. feel calm your eyes Mm. are closed you're listening to the wind like your teacher is talking to you in a calming voice that like makes you feel like honey and i'm just like okay (laughs) but on the way there i am awful with time management so bad and um i well i'm great with time management on most things but i can't get out the door on time to save my life and so I knew that the yoga class was going to be like 30 minutes away. And I knew that um, I live in Seattle and they decided to close like multiple major highways this weekend. So I was like, okay, it's going to be awful. Like traffic's going to be bad. I'm going to like GPS it, make sure I have enough time. And I'm like, cool, I got this. I'm FaceTiming my boyfriend in the morning, like getting ready. And I'm just like, yeah, no, this is like, I got this. I'm, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm time managing so well. I've had a smoothie. Like I, the dog has been walked. Like I'm literally killing it. And I get in my car and I was like, the GPS did that fun thing that it does sometimes with Apple Maps where it just decided to add like 10 minutes without any warning. And right. so I'm or it's now like realizing- suddenly there's been a horrible accident and it's going to take two hours to get there. So <laughs> exactly. sorry. Exactly. So I'm, I'm like, oh my fucking God, I'm going to be late. And I literally, I have raging social anxiety and I've had raging social anxiety for a while. Um, I, I, I tie it back actually- um, I have like a start date on it, which is crazy because most disorders, mm-hmm. you can't trace it back. I do um, with my panic disorder too. The first yeah. day I had a panic attack ever. I have the date like ingrained in my memory. Yeah. Like it started when I was 15 and it was, it actually was linked to my first panic attack. Funny enough, I had my first panic yeah. attack and I realized that people were looking at me and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And it yeah. was linked to like a separate trauma that happened right at that same time. And so um, I'm driving and I'm freaking out and I'm like, babe, I'm going to be late. Like I, I cannot walk into a class late. Like I, I would rather die. And we just have like, to turn around and never go no, back again. Literally. And I'm on the phone <laughs> with him. And I said, when I was in college and I would show up to a class late, I would walk up to the door and I would see everyone sitting down. I would leave. I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk. I was like, fuck this shit. I'm not walking in there by myself. That's terrifying. And right. I would leave. And he bless his heart. Cause his brain works so much differently than mine which I think is why he's like a really good benefit to my life out of many other reasons but um I said I said and he goes well why why would you want to like leave like why why does that make you anxious and I said well because I just kind of assume that everyone thinks that I am so disruptive and such a bitch and that 
I have no care for anyone else and that I'm showing up late and I hate everybody and I'm just being so entitled and like that I just think I'm like the queen of the world and like that's why it's okay for me to show up late when in reality like I'm incredibly anxious and I feel so bad that I just showed up late and his response he said huh that's really interesting my first thought would just be that everyone would say oh yay Fina made it I'm so glad that Fina was able to make it and Mm. I was like what and I said are you being serious like that's your (laughs) that's your first thought and he said yeah and I said I cannot tell you how much my my brain would have never gotten there like never never in a million years would that be my thought of like oh everyone's so excited to see Fina and he said but I think that that's actually the reality and he said I get that's not where your brain goes automatically I do think that's the reality I think that the person who's holding the class is probably just really excited that people are showing up and he said and I know you and you're not gonna walk into the class and be like hello I am here yoga can start and he was like you're gonna walk in quietly and like jump in the back and start and just like be peaceful and do your yoga and he said I'm sure everyone's just like oh yay more people for yoga and I paid attention to that because I my gracious gracious friend Kat was kind enough I called her and I was like help I'm gonna be late will you walk in late with me so she walked in late with me because she's kind and um we showed up and I paid attention to that and I saw a few other people show up late and funny enough I was my mind did not go straight to wow what bitches how dare you show up late to yoga in the park my brain went straight to like oh like more people to do yoga with and I was like hmm interesting um (laughs) which I just think is like such a like I, I, I had that conversation literally yesterday and I knew we were going to be talking about this today. And it was one of those things where I was just like, how interesting and how, what a intense like paradox and like how, how, what, what a like intense difference between how people with social anxiety think compared to what the reality of the situation might be. Oh my gosh. It's, it's unbelievable. I have this story too, where my <laughs> like social anxiety can be super funny sometimes. Like I, my fiance and I were at Dunkin' Donuts and that's my favorite place in the entire world. So I had begged her to, she hates going there obviously because going through the drive through and ordering whatever is just awful for her. So I'm begging her to take me and she finally agrees. So I'm like, okay, nothing can happen. Like I need this coffee. She's finally agreed to take me. So she's pulling up through the drive through and she orders and whatever. And you know when there's two windows and you're not sure which window the person's going to be at? So that gives you anxiety, which probably no one ever thinks about. But so she's like driving and she drove to the second window and the person was at the first window and she didn't realize. So she just took off. Like instead of just backing up and being like, oh my gosh, sorry, like let me grab my coffee or whatever. Oh, she said no. she just took off. And I did not get my coffee, but it was extremely funny to think back on. But that just is a great example of like, she just couldn't handle the anxiety of like going back and, yeah. and, you know, saying that she like had made that like mistake or whatever. But, um, I think that happens in so many people's lives where it's kind of that all or nothing thinking too, that comes with mm-hmm. anxiety and social anxiety. Like either I'm going to be on time and be perfect and make it, or I'm going to be late and not go to that class at all. And I will never yeah. see these people again. And I'm going to leave the country like type of <laughs> thoughts. So <laughs> very much so. And with that being said, I think that we mentioned the self-hatred. I think there's definitely some self-hatred there where mm-hmm. I think there's a, a misconception that people with social anxiety don't want to be social. And I, I don't actually think that's normally the case. I think that no. there's actually normally a desire to be social, but your anxiety is prohibiting you from that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, about like how people can kind of assume that maybe you're just 
not any fun or you're a homebody yes. and you just like hate people. <laughs> oh my gosh. My fiance has this label on her forehead of like, she hates going anywhere and she would rather like stay inside and, and uh, doesn't answer her phone and doesn't respond to messages. And so she must be like a dick like type of thing. But I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to grab her phone for her and text her friends and be like, pretending to be her and say like, Hey, I've really been struggling. This is why it hasn't, why I haven't answered you because she's too anxious to like even say that. Um, so I think that that's a huge misconception. Even when I was having panic attacks every day, I, I could not leave my apartment because I was so like, just not in reality and so afraid of everything and wasn't eating or sleeping. And I had so many friends reach out to me and be like, what is up with you? Like, why, you know, why don't you want to come to this? Like you're acting differently, like not in a supportive way, just super being like, what's going on. And so I think, um, other people's minds kind of go to, well, they just, they must be, like you said, boring, or they must not enjoy these things, or they don't want to see us. Not that like, oh, they must be struggling, or how can I make this more social anxiety friendly? Like maybe we can invite less people, or maybe we could make it um, a quieter event or something like that. So I think that is a huge part of social anxiety too, that you're afraid other people aren't going to understand, which a lot of the times, like they unfortunately don't. Yeah. I, I read something recently that said, um, like other people's mental illness can be exhausting for you. Like for you as the, as the partner, as the friend, as the parent, mm -hmm. whatever, but no one is more exhausted by it than them. Like no exactly. one is more exhausted by anxiety than the person who is anxious. Um, and I think that there can be some serious misunderstandings that it is a choice and you're just trying to be standoffish. And obviously there's a, there's a, a flip side to that coin where mental illness is not uh, a reason to not take accountability for your actions. Like there's obviously mm -hmm. accountability that needs to be taken there as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not up to other people to like fix your mental illness or, or, you know, right. get, mm -hmm. get you through it on their own. And that's, you know, so there's, there's a definitely like nuance there, but I think that it in general by society as a whole, there's definitely a misconception about, I think mental illness as a whole, that people are just choosing to do these things. And it's, it, and oh my rather, God. rather than just uh, having some serious empathy and care for the fact that like, no, imagine how exhausting it is for them. Imagine how hard mm -hmm. it is for them because they probably really don't want to be this way. They probably oh, really I was, would love to do things in a quote unquote normal way. <laughs> I was going to say towards the beginning of this podcast and I completely forgot, but uh, we have only just started to understand mental illness within the last seriously, like 10 to 20 years. I feel like, like there are still so many things that we have no idea about or are super uneducated about. So there's that to keep in mind. And then on top of that, I think my favorite thing to say to others, and this, this was said to me, so I want to pass it along to anyone who may be listening is like, when people say like, just choose to be happy or just choose to ignore your anxiety or whatever, it's like, why would you choose otherwise? You know, like, mm. why would, why would I choose to not be happy? Like I'm dying to be happy. Or why would I choose to sit here and isolate by myself? Like I'm, I would love to come hang out with whoever and enjoy my time. Like, you know, so I just hate that because if there was a choice, I would be choosing it. <laughs> right, right. You know, 
So that's always been a super frustrating statement to me. And, and it's something that I've heard throughout my life, which is so unfortunate. And I'm sure tons of other people have heard and been conditioned to try their best to think that way. And it's just not possible in my opinion. Yeah. It's, it's patronizing and it's, it's, I think it's condescending in its nature as well, because it's, it's assuming that, like you said, if like that essentially that you're like too dumb to choose the right choice. And it's like, right. if it, if it was a choice to be suffering. happy, right, right. Which is so, it undermines the intensity of it. And I, there's a TikTok sound going around right now that mm-hmm. I find fucking hilarious. Um, and someone it's like people get yeah did you know that some people get too depressed to brush their teeth and this girl goes people get so depressed they kill themselves Karen I was like like, yeah literally fair enough because there people get stuck on the little oh that's different and that's icky and oh that's hard and it's like no this is actually a very serious issue and I think that it I think it's it's unfortunate and it's it's it can be really isolating um and with all that being said, I want to end on some coping tools specifically for social anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. If you are experiencing social anxiety or if you're entering a situation that you know might make you socially anxious, what are some ways that you can prepare? And mm-hmm. then as a little add-on, what do you think – and I can speak to this too if you want me to, but what are some ways that a friend – if you know that your friend is socially anxious, what are some ways that you can actively help them and be uh, cognizant of their anxiety and just and just be you know thoughtful and intentional about trying to make them feel safe? Oh my gosh, yeah, that is super important. Um, I think when it comes to you, if you personally experience social anxiety, um, a few things that I have you know learned about in my studies or by watching other people, like my fiance. Um, First of all, exposure therapy, which is extremely hard and painful. (laughs) Um, But basically, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's just um, wherever your anxiety lies, you jump right into it. You face that thing. You do that thing. Like, for example, if you have driving anxiety, that exposure therapy would look like getting in your car and maybe driving down the road and then coming back home. And then the next week, you'll drive down three roads and then come back type of thing. Yeah, yeah. The baby steps. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe if you're not feeling it, um, take it down to hanging out with like one trusted person. And then the next time there's an event, you know, try taking that one person outside of your home to like get ice cream or something, you know? So it's slowly increasing your threshold and seeing what you're capable of handling and pushing that boundary slowly. Um, and another thing is to let people know you have social anxiety, which is another super easy thing to say, really, really, really hard thing to do. But I, even in my general anxiety and my panic attacks, just telling people, Hey, I have extreme anxiety. This is how I might act in certain situations. Like I'm struggling really bad. So this might be helpful or that might be helpful. Just being honest about it and letting people know around you that is happening helps you to not be suffering by yourself in silence, you know, like other people can help or can recognize when things are going on. Um, and moving towards other people and friends and how they can help. If you know, someone's struggling with social anxiety, um, educate yourself and be aware of what social anxiety looks like and try your best to not be judgmental and be that person that says, you know, why, why aren't you coming and hanging out? Like you're so boring or whatever. Like 
try to refrain from saying things like that because it can actually be super triggering or upsetting to someone because I'm sure they're dying to come and hang out with you and they just can't because of their anxiety. And so saying that is just really hurtful. Um, and also just being open to what helps each person, like say, cause, um, start a conversation and say like, does talking to you help or does physically touching you help? Does water help? You know, like build that relationship with someone to where, you know, their triggers and you know what helps. So if you're with them in that situation, you know what to do. And that can save that person a lot of stress of dealing with it by themselves because um, that's another fear, um, I think, is people having social anxiety and having to go through it alone. Yeah, I think letting people into it and then vice versa, if you're the friend or the partner or the whatever, asking them what they need, just asking people what they need in general with mental illness, I think is really valued compared to just assuming that you know what they need or trying to, exactly, um, it, I guess, inflect your like your solution upon them. It can be a lot <laughs> more helpful and intentional to just ask. Um but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I, like I said, I've loved your content and I, I think that this is a conversation that, like I said, I don't think that either of these subsets of anxiety get talked about enough. And I think mm -hmm. that a lot of people deal with them, especially in this day and age. So thank mm -hmm. you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and, and your insight. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is the first podcast I've ever done, by the way. So Shut thank you for up. being so welcoming and making this process really easy. Oh my God. First of all, congrats. Second of all, you did great. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'm so glad that we were your first. That's so fun. Um, yeah. And with that being said, I want to make sure that people can find you on social media and um, or on whatever else you have to follow mm -hmm. you and follow your content. So would you mind letting people know where they can find you and follow you? Yeah, I just have Instagram and Facebook as of right now. I also have TikTok and it's all anxiety.positive. I don't have anything else. Um, and that's my one and only name for everything. Amazing. Okay, well, I will link all of that. Um, and once again, thank you so much for coming on. Congrats on your first podcast. Thanks. And um, to the listeners, like seriously, go follow Bailey. Um, your content is great. It's so colorful and so beautiful too. Um, and uh, yeah, and I hope that if you're listening and you suffer from anxiety, you feel a little bit more heard and understood and validated and um, you're not alone in this. A lot of people suffer from it. Um, and to give yourself some grace because it can be really, really, really exhausting. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and Spotify and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. And you can find more information about the podcast at mindfulmindspod.com. You can also follow us on TikTok at Mindful Minds Podcast, and you can follow my TikTok account at Fina underscore underscore Bina, F-I-N-A underscore underscore B-I-N-A for more deconstruction content. And as always, to end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath, and remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will chat with you guys in two weeks. Mm -hmm.